Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. When I'm not writing about clicker training, I'm very much focused on what we can do to make a positive change for the environment. My guest this week is Susan Snyder. Susan describes herself as a scientific generalist. I love that. Someone who loves to learn is someone I love spending time with. Susan has advanced degrees in both engineering and psychology, and she also happens to be an experienced naturalist. Many of you will know her through her award-winning book, The Science of Consequences, How They Affect the Genes, Change the Brain, and Impact Our World. That book demonstrated what a tireless and thorough researcher Susan is. So as a climate change activist, Susan has been equally tireless in researching this field, which is great news for us. We're all experiencing the impact of the coronavirus. As bad as it is, I can't help but think it's just a dress rehearsal for what is coming if we don't make dramatic changes to slow climate change. We've managed to flatten the coronavirus curve, at least for the moment. Wouldn't it be great if we could take some of the lessons we're learning from this crisis and do the same for CO2 emissions? I know for some of you listening to this, this is a time of great sorrow, great stress, and certainly if you are a healthcare worker or one of the other essential workers, it's also a time of incredibly hard work. But for many of us, this is a time when our previous lives have been put on hold. We're in a long pause. We want to help. We keep asking, how can we help? What can we do? And the answer we get is stay home, stay safe, stay home, stay away from other people so you don't add to the burden of hospital cases. Stay home, spend time with your family, discover how much you really enjoy being with them, read, and what's most important, let's all collectively imagine what a better new normal would be like. Now this is where Susan can help. On every subject we cover in our conversation, she has references for us, books to read, articles to look up, projects we can take on. I'm publishing this during the week in which we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. I can think of no better guest to have to help us celebrate this milestone. And as a gift for all of us during this Earth Day celebration, Susan has sent me her annotated list of books on sustainability and climate change. This is more than just a list of references. Every book includes Susan's description and comments. It is a wonderfully useful resource for all of us who want to learn more, both about the challenges that we are facing with climate change and what we can do about them. I'm going to include the list in the show notes, along with a link to Susan's website, thescienceofconsequences.com. So let me welcome now to the podcast, Dr. Susan Snyder. Thank you for asking me, Alexandra. Yes. Well, there, there are two main areas that I think are worth exploring together. So the, the main gist, the audience that I'm reaching out to has been, is the horse community. And the initial premise was that we, we need to do something uh, to help mitigate the effects of climate change. And horse people own a lot of land because horses need land. So the first step in was that we can sequester carbon in our pastures. And the more we learn about 
maintaining healthy pastures and building up biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera, we, we can create healthier pastures. And it's a win-win situation because the healthier pastures are better for our horses. So even if somebody doesn't really care about climate change, they do care about their horses. So in the process of making the pastures healthier for the horses, we end up sequestering carbon. So, and we end up increasing the biodiversity. So we create wildlife habitat for birds, for insects, for mammals. It's just a great win-win-win situation. Very much. Very much. But one of the things that I know is that when you want to expand a field, when you want to expand your knowledge base and to come up with new and different and other solutions, the best way to do that is by bringing in expertise and, and looking at other fields, other areas of interest, rather than trying to expand it from within. And so for me, these podcasts have been a great opportunity for me to learn, but also to reach out beyond the horse world to others who have expertise beyond that which I have in area, in fields that I don't have, which is why I was so excited to be talking to you. Huh. Well, thank you. There are two general areas that I would love to explore with you. And the first is just in general, the what we're up against with climate change, because I know that this is a passion for you. And I and in a sense, we're talking to the choir. Uh, you know, people who listen to Horses for Future are people who are concerned about the effects of climate change. But we need to be able to talk to other people without turning them off. So the first thing that I would love to ask or explore with you is when you're talking to groups, when you're talking to the different communities that you get to address, what's the starting point and what kinds of things are you sharing these days? Right. And uh, it very much depends on the audience, as you would imagine. Yes. If I'm speaking to people who I know recognize the urgency of the climate crisis, even now in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, we have crises all over yes. at the moment. Yes, exactly. But but people who get the urgency of cutting back on our greenhouse gas emissions, then that's a somewhat different talk than an audience where I know that there are some people who are still uh, perhaps uh, convinced that climate change is real, but not convinced that most of it is anthropogenic and caused by human activities, although the science on that has in fact been pretty clear for years. So, you know, you have to adjust it to your audience, of course. Yes. So let's assume that I'm talking to, as a horse person, I'm talking to my neighbor, the farmer who has the cornfields that surround my horse property. And this is an individual who's not really convinced that climate change is anything that he needs to be concerned about. How do I talk to this individual? Yeah, yeah well, ideally you find some common ground. If, if, if the person, if they want to improve their crop yield and use less herbicide, use less fertilizer, methods like uh, regenerative agriculture can, can do that. So it will actually advance their bottom line to do the right thing by the climate too. Uh, things like no-till, having cover crops, uh, if they care about nature, then making that point that these uh, more modern data-based approaches will also help bring back some of the biodiversity, which you talked about earlier, Alexandra. Yes. Again and again, good for the bottom line, and also, by the way, helping with sequestering carbon. So if I'm that farmer and I say, but, you know, we have to feed the world. There are how many billions people now? What are we up to? Um, nearly eight, many, nearly eight wow. billion. And it's been these advances in modern agriculture 
that have eliminated the famines that we used to see around the planet because there was food scarcity. Of course, we still have famines, but that's yes. often political rather than actual the food, but that's another whole story. So that farmer is saying, this is how we feed the world. I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage, to have these incredible crop yields that I can get using the modern fertilizers. What do we say to that individual? Right. And uh, uh, again, this is an area where I've done some reading, so I have some knowledge, but I'm far from being an expert. So that being said, uh, three books I've read come to mind. Uh, the most recent one, Sandra Postel's book uh, from 2017, Replenish, about uh, the current water shortages uh, in many places uh, in the world, uh, which also covers uh, some climate change topics. Another one called The End of Plenty, about agriculture in the 21st century with climate change in mind, water shortages in mind. And then a very well-known book uh, for the third pick about uh, climate change and a hundred successful methods to address it, and that's a drawdown Paul Hawkins, Hawkins Group, uh, it was a big bestseller just a couple of years ago, very well known, and uh, they include a lot about what agriculture can do to help address the climate crisis and still feed the world with the nearly 8 billion now, and we're anticipating that we're going to reach 10 billion and possibly more by mid-century before the population starts to decrease again. So uh, how, how can we do this? I, I think it's a fair criticism, just again from the what I've read, some of the new newsletters I get to, you know, about all this, uh, that uh, we, we can't just all go all organic, although some people would argue that. Yes. But certainly some of the more uh, middle-of-the-road approaches towards doing no-till, doing cover cropping, where you can have, like you were saying before, a win-win-win, where in fact you can have crop yields that are the same or even in some cases better, you know, it, there's so many variables, right? But certainly in some cases you can even do better by using less herbicide, less fertilizer. You're able to uh, minimize your water use by doing things like the no-till and the cover crops. You maintain your soil quality better and you can hold more water and more carbon. Again, it really is a win-win-win. Uh, this, what I was just talking about, is covered in Sandra Postel's book that I just mentioned, uh, Replenish, and agroforestry methods where that's appropriate. And for some of your horse people, Alexandra, you know, having some trees in the pasture can have a lot of benefits, not just for the uh, carbon intake, uh, but also for providing shade, you know, during yes. summer for the horses, right? Yes. Things like that can have uh, multiple benefits and can also still allow farmers to uh, maintain yields while uh, maintaining their profits as well. Oh, less erosion too. I'm just looking at my yes, notes here. Yes. And of course, we've been looking at the role that herbivore, that the grazers have in this, that looked at some of the work that Gabe Brown uh, did dirt to soil and uh, Sam Bing, uh, the Alan Savory from the Savory Institute, their use of, yes. of livestock and the mob grazing. Sierra Magazine here in the U.S. had an article very critical of Savory, according to the experts that they were citing and the, you know, the evidence basis, the publications. Grazing density does matter. Brewer's research, for example, there was a China grassland study. 20 years of grazing exclusion increased the soil carbon storage by over 35%. And they cite some other studies too. Australia had a study. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, 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 rotational grazing can be helpful, it can benefit water conservation, and in the right circumstances, again, I'm looking at my notes here, uh, you know, 
grazing done right where it's not overgrazed where you rotate and all this you, you can you can you can increase the carbon content but at least from what i've read and again i'm no expert on this but the, the people i've read who summarize the opposite side from savory seem to me to make a pretty strong case that you know grazing density does matter well he was he was making the case that it wasn't grazing density per se it was the amount of recovery time that was critical so if you're putting the animals back on your fields before the plants have had a chance to recover from the previous grazing bout, then you will cause a deterioration. So it's, I would say it was what they're really promoting is not just rotational grazing, but planned grazing. Because I know certainly from the horses that we rotate the pastures but if you rotate too quickly, you know, if you move the horses back onto a field before it's had a chance to recover, you, you make no progress in restoring pasture. That makes sense, certainly. Yeah. So I, I think there's, there's a lot more to be looked at in that whole area of what is the effect of predators. And in some of the wilding projects, that were going on. Uh, I mean, that's fascinating. Have you read Isabel Tree's uh, Wilding? No, I've heard about it, but I haven't read it. It's a it's a great book. It was it's a fun read. Uh, she's a good writer, and good. She, uh, what they're the results that they're getting by taking this. They had what was it? I think thirty five. I want to say thirty five hundred, but I don't think that's the size of it. But a large estate that was arable land. And they just let it go wild. They stopped formal farming, but they brought in herbivores. So they brought in cattle, pigs, deer, and ponies because they needed the grazing impact basically to keep some open area. So without the, right. the grazing impact, it just went to trees and you lost the open areas. But one of the things that was so fascinating in that book, they started to see species of endangered species, uh, they had returning. So they had species of butterflies suddenly that uh, returning that were on the endangered list and the butterfly people were all excited to see them. And they had, yay. Yay, and they have, uh, I think it's six out of the seven species of bats that are native to uh, England, and they had birds that were on the endangered species list that suddenly there were breeding pairs. But they made the point, several points that were interesting, that they weren't managing for specific species. So they weren't managing the habitat to try and get the particular species of butterflies, and I've forgotten which ones that she was writing about, but they weren't trying to get the butterflies back or they weren't trying to get habitat for the the raptors that they started to see or some of the other species but just by having the biodiversity the habitats became suitable and they started to see more and more of these species taking hold and there were birds that have been described as forest birds. These are birds that live in the forest. Well, they were nesting along the edge of the forest. And she was saying, you know, it's possible that we think that these species are forest species or prefer this kind of habitat, but that's because we see them there and that's all that's left to them. But when you provide greater biodiversity, when you provide more types of habitats, they start to spread out and you find that they actually have much wider ranges than we thought that they had before. It was, it was an interesting book. I enjoyed it. And, and she definitely made the case for the importance of herbivores. Yeah, certainly in areas where they were present historically, I, I've seen research kind of along those lines in the, the, uh, the, the Great Plains area of the United yes. States, 
where again, you know, is, although sometimes you have to get rid of some of the invasive species like the invasive plant species, but once you do have uh, herbivores, either, you know, the native buffalo or, and, and such, or uh, sometimes cattle uh, and horses uh, as uh, uh, alternatives, you know. Well, of course, horses would have been so pre-human. So uh, horses... Many, many, many millennia before, yes. though, right? Yes. Yeah, of course, they evolved in North America, yes. right? But but they but they haven't been present naturally until uh, you know the Europeans brought them yes. back obviously yeah they, but that's an interesting point right but at any rate right uh, 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 if you kind of replicate the conditions then for the native prairies so much of which has been lost because it was plowed under then sometimes you do get the biodiversity being uh, restored kind of uh, naturally although it doesn't always work either sometimes you do have to bring some of these things in until you can start seeing something like the birds you know if they're around anywhere then they will find the suitable habitat yes. right although in the, the eastern u.s though it's different i mean that was originally forest and what we need for fighting the climate crisis is for a lot of that and the other areas of the planet that was you know that's suitable for forest and was originally in many cases until people uh, cut down the forest, right? Uh, if, if that could be restored, then that would significantly help our efforts in bringing down greenhouse gas emissions. And it doesn't mean that you have to exclude the horses again, because there's no reason why you can't have a pasture that's got some trees Absolutely. in it. Absolutely. Or the hedgerows. Right. Right. So they're, they're not um, mutually exclusive and oftentimes the land the properties that we own have woodlots associated with them so a lot of it is learning how to be better stewards of those woodlots excellent you know, that's that's all part of it yes indeed and, and and planting trees that are suitable you know ideally native trees for the area and that uh, are drought tolerant or you know, suited for whatever rainfall is normal in the area all of that and again there's a lot of science available and a lot of people who are trying to uh, you know be good stewards of the land, whether whether it's the, the prairies and the pastures or the forests or some mix. Uh, uh, and this is one of the top recommendations in that book, uh, World Watch, by the uh, World Watch, uh, Drawdown, uh, about uh, uh, globally bringing down greenhouse gas emissions and the uh, CO2 levels. And agroforestry is one of those methods that can play a significant role potentially. So. Horse people have pastures, but often we may have horses that we board and we have houses that have lawns. So one of the other areas that I really am interested in is how do we shift? What do we shift to in our lawns to promote more sequestering of carbon? So the current way that people in my upstate New York area we have the, the green grass that's kept mowed short. There's very little biodiversity in those lawns. What should we be doing instead? What are people doing in various areas? Right, again, this is an area where I do have some knowledge because I've been into native plants and drought tolerant plants for many years. In fact, I, I wish I could show you what I'm looking at right now in my yard here, because uh, here in the Central Valley of California, it's spring, and I have all kinds of native plants blooming. I have uh, birds and pollinators coming. I use no extra water. Uh, I've been in this house over 10 years, and once you establish native or drought-tolerant plants in your yard, then uh, unless there's a really unusually long drought, which has happened a couple of times, uh, you don't need to use any additional water whatsoever. And moving water around uh, 
that in itself takes a lot of energy. And then, of course, mowing. A lot of people still use the uh, gasoline-powered yes. mowers. Those are highly inefficient, very polluting. You know, electric is better. Ideally, though, you don't mow at all. And, of course, if you plant suitable native plants and drought-tolerant plants, you don't have to. And so uh, it, it really is a win-win-win. You get the birds and the butterflies and our endangered pollinators. It's good for water conservation. And, uh, and if you're careful with your selection, and here's where you have to really consult local resources online, your local native plant society, government sources. There's usually books now, uh, and developed nations anyway, advising you about what works if you want to go in this direction. And uh, it's just a wealth of knowledge. Even so, it was really easy to do for me when I lived in Miami, Alexandra, because, you know, plenty of rainfall there. I was in uh, uh, Florida, which gets a lot of rain, and any native plants I put in the ground, they did great. I had a very high success rate. It's been harder in the Central yeah. Valley, which is a semi-arid region. Uh, my success rate is still over 50%, but it's nowhere near what it was in Miami. So uh, you, you do have to be kind of persistent, uh, but again, there's a lot of resources out there to help you, and once you get far enough along, it, it's just a joy. So, you know, I've always I've always lived in a green, wet environment. So the idea of managing horses, creating a garden, having a lawn in an arid environment is foreign to me. I love the fact that you're living in the Central Valley where the conditions are so very different. So tell me, if I were to move out and uh, if I bought property next to your house, and so you were you were advising me on how to get started. How would I get started? Yeah, first, I would go online and find your local native plant society. Uh, also, extension services for universities uh, often have a unit on native plants or drought tolerant plants. Uh, local governments in these regions. Uh, sometimes state governments too, sometimes even pay people. And this is the case, for example, for uh, cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix and Tucson, Arizona, and in Los Angeles, they will pay you to replace your lawn with native plants or drought tolerant plants. And so they have resources to help you do that. And then again, local books, there are several just for the state of California, of course, it's very populous and a lot of people want to try this on uh, how to switch over from a lawn to something that is more eco-friendly and will help with sustainability and fighting uh, the climate crisis. And uh, people uh, you know, who belong to the Native Plant Society and who live in your area, because boy, California is a big state. Uh, different parts of the state, you want to plant totally different native plants. And so, yeah, yeah. So, so talking to people in your own uh, area can help uh, you figure out which of the many choices is most likely to succeed. And again, it doesn't have to be native, just replacing lawns with something that doesn't require mowing and that doesn't require extra water will be helping the planet. Yeah that shift in culture would be a wonderful one to make where you get to the point where the person who has that looks like a golf course neat as a pin um, mowed down to a fraction of the ground that they're the people who are sort of oh not quite socially accepted within the group and it's the people with the shaggy lawns that have the bees buzzing and certainly you can still have areas where that is a lawn where you can have children playing, where you can have activities of that sort and have the rest as wildlife gardens. Uh, exactly. Or you can also, in many cases, replace the lawn with something that can still be mowed, ideally, you know, push mower or electric mower and not gas, but where it doesn't use as much water as a lawn does and has other benefits perhaps. Uh, uh, something like yarrow here in the Central Valley is sometimes used uh, for that purpose. And the thing is, once someone starts right converting even part of their lawn, and other people in the neighborhood see that, oh, there's butterflies, you know, and, and they still do have, right, a lawn section or something comparable, then other people 
are often inspired to follow that example. It's like with solar panels. This is uh, what the research is showing that once someone in a neighborhood gets solar panels on their roof, other people see, oh, you know, this is actually doable. And uh, all of a sudden it takes off in that neighborhood. Social norms. Yeah, well, that's really what I'm hoping with this because horse people are everywhere. We're in all we're in all environments, we're in all communities, we're on the edges of suburbs, we're out in the country, we're throughout the country, we are everywhere. And so if the more we can be these little seeds of change, the more the ripple effects will go out, whether that's going out into the suburban areas where people start to see an alternative to the green grass that is the norm, whether it's a ripple that goes out to the, the farmers and when we start to talk about the regenerative farming, I think it's all really powerful that we have an enormous power of influence just by modeling better stewardship of the land. Exactly. You are so right. One of the two main barriers that the American Psychological Association has found to people making these kinds of changes is a sense of futility, you know, that I'm just one person. But if enough people do these things, and if it starts to spread, uh, it becomes like a, a viral. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> oh boy, in this time of yeah. coronavirus, but a more positive sense there, then it actually does add up to something significant. Absolutely. Because if I think about the few acres that I have for my horses on this great huge planet, I would think any change that I make for the better, it's not going to have any impact globally on climate change. But multiply that by the numbers, because the number of horse people and the amount of land that we have under our care, then all of a sudden we can make a really significant impact. So it's that, yes. it's that ripple effect where the power is, which actually brings me to the second area that is was of interest to me in talking to you. And that's really drawing from the whole field of behavioral analysis. And it's how do we change people's behavior? So we're in the midst of this horrific coronavirus and the restrictions. So when we when we first talked about doing a podcast, I, I don't think the virus was even in the United States yet. And all of a sudden it's been like this freight train that just came at us at top speed and the schools are closed, businesses are closed, hospital rates are going up. I live in New York state, thankfully not the city, but New York is the most impacted state in the country. Every morning when you were listening to the press conferences that Governor Cuomo is holding and we listen to what we need to do for uh, to flatten the curve is the newest phrase, and it's impacting everybody in the country. There is not anybody yeah. who is not impacted by this. Yeah. So there are behavior changes that are occurring because of this. When I drive through my neighborhood to get from my house to the barn, because the horses do not live where I at the house, I see a lot more people out walking. That's an encouraging thing. And, the, and they are keeping their, their six feet apart distances. So that there will be behavior changes that are occurring because of the virus that are actually positive things to carry forward. And I also see the virus as, it's like this is a, a dress rehearsal for what could happen if we don't mitigate some of the effects of climate change that some of the things that are being forecasted, like when we read the deep adaptation paper and so on, of the collapse of society, which like we don't want to even go there, but we're seeing a taste of how something can impact the entire planet. And so it's a bit of a dress rehearsal. And my question is, 
what strategies, what can, what is it that behavioral analysis can help us with in terms of how we talk to people about climate change, how we talk to people about changing some of their personal habits, how do we build better habits, how do we do things such as reducing the amount of plastic that we use, you know, all of those things. It's we need to change human behavior before we can really have an impact on climate change. Yes, uh, that is so true. We've actually had the science and technology needed to solve this problem for a number of years. It's a behavioral problem and it's a political problem. The behavioral sciences, though, all of them clearly are going to be and already are a, a critical element in the mix of solutions. Let's hope that, again, it's going to be enough to avoid uh, truly catastrophic outcomes. Uh, uh, it's pretty scary, though, where we are now. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we need to cut back global greenhouse gas emissions by about 50% within the next 10 years, and that is a very tall order. Yes. So um, so just to pick on one of the topics that you mentioned, uh, Alexandra, and that was the second of the two main barriers that the American Psychological Association found was hindering people from making the changes that we need to make. And that is, we're all used to, well, I shouldn't say that, but to some extent, I think we are all used to less than ideal habits, uh, you know, somewhat wasteful habits uh, in the developed nations in particular, some more than others. And switching to a greener, eco-friendly habit is sometimes not easy. And so using uh, my own specialty area within the behavioral sciences called behavior analysis, which is based on learning principles like positive reinforcement. That is one of the well-established methods to accomplish that. And in connect connection with the coronavirus, it's interesting because people from a number of fields have found that to change a habit, it helps when something else in your life has already been disrupted. For example, if you are moving, then that offers an opportunity to establish new habits because so much else in your life is changing anyway. Yes, and we've just, all of us are experiencing a huge disruption in our lives. So what are some of the good habits that we can be planting so that as we begin, as life begins to go back to some more um, active form of normal, that we're carrying these good habits forward with us. Right, and of course, there's a lot of behaviors that we can change and a lot of policy that will help nudge us to make those changes. So again, policy is the big lever here, but uh, we're talking now more about what individuals can do. And there is still a great deal that people can do. One, of course, is vote for people, for politicians who do recognize that climate change is a real problem and we need solutions. And that can help with the policy shifts that will make it possible for us to meet this challenge. But way beyond that, right, there's so much individuals can do in, in our own lives, uh, for their workplace, for community groups that uh, we belong to, uh, etc. Uh, there's a lot of good online resources. Uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists, for example, has a lot of good resources online and also has a book out, Cooler Smarter, about uh, recommended changes, things like, you know, buying Energy Star appliances or, you know, like you said, uh, cutting back on plastic. Don't use bottled water. This is such a harmful thing for the planet, right? Use reusable water bottles, etc. My top book pick, though, for something like this uh, currently is called, it's by Mary DeMocker, and I don't have any association with her. Okay, it's just, yeah, uh, it's called The Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution, 
but it's not just for parents. It's for everybody. It's been strongly endorsed by groups like Yale Climate Connections, which I think has one of the best e-newsletters, weekly uh, e-newsletter on climate change issues. Also, it's endorsed by National Sierra Club and a lot of uh, distinguished people like Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org. And it offers a multitude of ways that uh, ordinary people like us can make changes. And it's just so funny. You wouldn't think a climate change book could be funny, but it is, it's inspiring. She's got wonderful examples. She is comprehensive in her range of suggestions for things that are just, you know, short and easy, things that are longer term, you know, kids at different ages. And like I said, it's not just for parents, it's for everybody because she just nailed it, I think, and covering the ground so thoroughly and readably and in a very fun way that you will read the book and want to get out and do things and feel like, yes, wow. we can solve and this what was problem. The title again? Yes, it's called The Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution. Excellent. So what would be, do you remember some of her suggestions off the... Well, I've got the book here with me. <laughs> Yes, uh, uh, getting the facts, here's one as I go through here. Okay, uh, diet. Okay, there's one we haven't talked about yet. Again, it's just practically everything we do. Basically, everything we do, in fact, does have a climate footprint. There's another funny climate change book I can recommend uh, called How Bad Are Bananas? I can look up the author here. I have an annotated list of 50 books within the last 10 years on climate change and sustainability that I recommend, uh, which I'm glad to share, by the way. And let's see how better. Yeah, it's by Mike Berners-Lee, who is a Brit. So there is a bit of a Eurocentric focus, and it's uh, about nine years old now. But again, he looks at the climate footprint of everything. That's the subtitle of the book. Bananas, okay, mentioned in the title, are actually good because they don't need packaging and they come on uh, container ships or freighters, right? So that when you look at uh, the life cycle analysis there for the carbon footprint, it's actually quite low. And going back to Murray Democra's book then, the, the Parents' Guide to Climate Revolution, she also is very thorough and looking at all aspects of what we do, what we buy, what we wear, what we eat, how we get to work, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Even bicycling around the block has a carbon footprint, no. Alexandra. How? Well, there's the uh, resources that went into making yes. the bicycle, and there's the food you have to eat so you can expend the calories yes. required. And there's the pavement that you're bicycling on. That's right. So basically, in terms of the food side of things, probably everyone knows, I think, that cutting back on red meat in particular is important, cutting back on dairy, right? Going more plant-based generally is helpful. And, and how to do that with kids, you know, find recipes that work. Uh, I am mainly vegan now, not entirely, but mainly. And the first vegan cookbook I bought was like a total disaster, even though it had lots of good reviews. Yeah, maybe I just happened to pick out recipes that, you know, were not particularly uh, inspired. But now uh, I have a recipe book I like very much, and it comes with the website too called Oh She Glows. There's a lot of good ones out there. This just happens to be one that was recommended to me that I have found to be very consistently good in the recommendations. Uh, it is all vegan. Again, you don't have to be all vegan. Just to cut back on the red meat in particular is really helpful. Things like the Meatless yeah. Mondays. Yes, that recipe book was called... The, the blog is called oshiglows.com. Okay. It's Angela is her first name. I don't remember her last name. Something like Littered, I think. But she has several books out now. And you can just freely go on her blog and see her recipes and really, really delicious-looking ah, photos. Mouth-watering. Yes. So what kind of fabric should we avoid or use so close right the best of all is 
you know, reduce, reuse, yeah. recycle. This is, you know, the litany in the environmental world, probably since the first Earth Day in 1970, I'm guessing. But yeah, really reducing the amount of stuff we buy is important. And so then, what, if, if you do need uh, new clothes, going to thrift shops, which I'm really pleased, just within, I'd say, the last five years or more, and at least around here, I don't know, elsewhere. But I think generally, this is becoming something that, you know, people even, you know, who are middle class and above that uh, are doing. Uh, it used to be, you know, that a thrift shop was not something you would go to for many people unless you had things yes. to drop off, you know, like to Goodwill or something like that. Goodwill, by the way, I just finished a book called Secondhand about the uh, secondhand market and everything worldwide, which was utterly fascinating. I highly recommend that. Minter is the author and Goodwill is the example he starts out with in that book as an exemplar of doing a good job with uh, uh, reducing our need to buy new things by taking full advantage of used clothing, used goods in general. Uh, so, so that would be one option. And other than that, right, you know, making do with your current clothes, not feeling like you have to be the height of fashion. This is news to, this is great news for me because I have <laughs> never, ever been the height of fashion. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so that's yes. the new fashion. Is, uh, <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. Again, then beyond that, yeah, certain materials better than others. That's more specialized. I'd have to do some research on that. Uh, I don't have that handy to discuss. Yeah, but it, the main thing is this whole the recycle, reduce, reuse. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Great. Well, you certainly are giving us a lot to read. This is excellent. <laughs> There's so many good books out there, so little time. Oh, well, that's the problem, isn't it? That's that's definitely the challenge, is finding reading time. So policies, yes. what would be in the sort of top rung of policies that we, that we really need to see implemented and that are doable? A carbon tax. Any economist will tell you cap and trade is good too. That is clearly working in some areas, including California, where I live, and the Northeast, where you are, Alexandra, has a compact or a coalition of states there. And I think one of the Canadian provinces is involved in that too, for getting greenhouse gas emissions down. But something like that ultimately, I think, uh, and a lot of economists would say this, is going to be critical in providing the financial incentives for corporations, agriculture, everybody, you know, to move in the direction that we need. So how would a carbon tax work? There's many, many approaches, right? You know about the yeah. Green New Deal, I'm sure, which in some ways is a little amorphous, partly because there's so many yes. different proposals for how to make that work. Citizens Climate Lobby, which is international now and not just in the United States where it started, they have a carbon fee, they don't like to call it a tax for obvious reasons, a carbon fee and dividend, dividend program where everyone would get a, a, a dividend so that those who are lower income for whom a carbon tax on fossil fuels can in some cases create a real hardship would have money coming to offset that negative impact. And also in the current version of the Citizens Climate Lobby uh, proposal, much of agriculture is exempted. That was controversial, by the way, because agriculture uses a lot yes. of fossil fuels, but it was felt like, you know, that, that was a whole separate issue there and better to focus uh, for the time being on things like uh, renewable energy and lifestyle uh, issues, transportation, you know, where you, if you have a tax on fossil fuels for heating and transportation, that then that will incentivize all the alternatives and with the electric cars and with the many alternatives for um, electricity production, like solar panels and wind. And in many cases, these are already competitive, even without the extra rebates and such, that that perhaps will be sufficient to move us along fast enough. But agriculture, again, really, we hope will do its part too. Yeah, it's a, a missed opportunity because circling back to the regenerative agriculture that we talked about, that would be 
such an easy way for farmers to offset their carbon taxes be to just shift to the regenerative agriculture. Yes. So carbon tax, what other policies would be in the top tier? Right. Uh, building codes. Building codes that require enough insulation, that require uh, or at least incentivize uh, uh, having solar panels, having your electric vehicle charging stations already built in for new housing. Uh, states like California, some of the others and elsewhere in the world are already doing this, and not just for residences, of course, but for businesses. And for businesses and for local governments, uh, there's some great books on this too. You know, Again, there is a real benefit for the bottom line. Sometimes, though, you do have that immediate uh, financial outgo, and the payback period uh, can be, you know, might be five years, might be 10 years, something like that. So here is where policy can make it easier to get over that initial barrier. It's like people switching on a much smaller scale here from the old incandescent light bulbs yes. to the LEDs. I mean, there's kind of sticker shock there because yes, the LEDs overall save a great deal of money over their lifetime. They last, you know, thousands of hours, right? Uh, but we aren't used to paying $10 for a single light bulb. Uh, and so uh, 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 municipalities, that had uh, rebates or at least campaigns educating the public on how this was actually going to save money as well as be good for the planet and save pollution and uh, greenhouse gas emissions and all that. Uh, and then once people started to use them and saw that, yeah, they really do last forever, now we see that the, the switch in many cases is uh, uh, already very well along. That's very encouraging because you know one person in one household or even one small business changing over to LEDs, that's not gonna have that much of an impact. But when you get a whole big city doing it on a large scale, yes. then it really does. Yes. Well, it's the same thing with the uh, reusable plastic bags. So New York State, hopefully this ban will withstand the coronavirus. But New York State, March 1st, I believe it was, banned single-use plastic bags. So now everybody's getting in the habit of carrying their reusable bags to the grocery store. Well, when it was just one or two people who used the reusable bags, but everybody else was filling their grocery cart with plastic bags, it doesn't make that much of a difference. But when everybody is bringing the reusable bags, it makes a huge difference. And there's the power of policy. And for the LED bulbs also, if you have a date beyond which the stores cannot sell the incandescence, which has been tried, then that moves the uh, switchover along much faster. Uh, not to say that it wouldn't happen otherwise, but we can't be sure that it would, and certainly it would be at yes. a much slower pace. Yes, because the, you know, the, the old incandescent light bulbs were really, there's quite a price difference. So when you're in the store and you're looking at the, these two choices, you yes. sometimes forget, oh, one is going to last a whole lot longer and cost you a whole lot less in the long run. Yes, so. that's the whole problem on a much larger scale for the climate crisis itself, isn't it? The consequences are with us now, particularly for the developing nations, but even in all the developed nations too. But still, the worst consequences are delayed, and it's just harder for us yes. to be influenced yes. by delayed and consequences. So is there better, different, other way of talking about climate change? Do we have the language right? Yes, uh, I'm not as much of an expert in that area, but I've been to some talks about that at climate change conferences, and I've read a couple of books and articles about it. So so again, just, just from what I'm seeing, you have to have someone approaching an audience who has a lot of credibility with that audience, uh, if it's an audience that is not not on board with uh, taking action on the climate crisis, right? I'm thinking here, for example, of uh, uh, the evangelical community in the United States, and Katie Hayhoe is an evangelical who is also a climate scientist who has a lot of credibility yes. then with that 
demographic. And so she has been able to make a lot of progress where a climate scientist who was not an evangelical, they, they have been much less effective. And so just finding someone who can speak to the particular audience, you know, who has a lot in common with them, who is respected by them, uh, and who can make the case a lot more effectively. And then just, you know, not going at it, obviously, in a confrontational way. I mean, kind of, duh, pretty obvious there. And yet, it can be hard not to for those of us who really get this and are aware of all the, you know, millions of people already dead and displaced because of this. Uh, it's it, it really is a, a, you know a awful urgent you know we, we need to do as much as we can immediately and so it, obviously it does get frustrating for those of us who are recognizing the need to uh, try and be diplomatic but you have to you, you try and find common ground be careful how you talk about it increasingly in the U.S. people. Uh, uh, are recognizing across the political spectrum that this is real, that we do need to take action, so that's going to make it a lot easier. But even so, talking about clean energy, talking about pollution, talking about being good stewards, that goes across well with almost everyone. Yes, because that has a, there's a positive tone in those words. I, you, of course, we'd want to be a good steward of the land that we care for. Exactly. And future generations, people care yes. about our kids. Yeah, that in many ways, I, I like to think of it more as what I want is a healthy planet. So it's not so much climate change, because that has a pushing yeah. against element in the language, in, in the associations. But a healthy planet, of course we want a healthy planet. Yes, and, and, and the pollution problem, that often resonates with people. Central Valley is the second worst air pollution problem in the United States after Southern California. And in fact, I was uh, tabling for my Climate Action Coalition, my local group that I co-founded uh, just a couple of weeks ago, right before the coronavirus at, at a science fair locally. And uh, of course, most of the people there were on board with doing something about this, but I did talk to Juan, who was a, a skeptic. We, we, he agreed, though, that the pollution issue was real and should be acted on. So there's an example of how using that as a talking point can be effective, where talking about global warming or climate change might not be. So finding that piece that's important to the individual that you're talking to. Exactly. And, and the financial benefits, uh, and this works with businesses as well as with individuals, you know, regardless of what you feel about climate change, if you can save money by switching to renewables or switching out your incandescents for LEDs, etc., getting rid of your lawn, then that can work quite apart from these other issues. Well, that's related to uh, with the horses that more and more we have horses who cannot go out on grass to, to graze, that the grass makes them sick. Oh. So when you start to talk about well, if we can change the pastures and create more biodiversity and so on, that this becomes healthier for your horses. Well, there will be people who will be all on board for that, but they wouldn't necessarily take the same actions to help with climate change. There you go. That's too remote a concept for them, but they want horses that are healthy. That's a great example, I think. So becoming more politically active or more active within your communities. I think that's another huge area to consider. It's one thing for me to say, all right, here's my pasture and I'm going to change some things that I do uh, with my horses and the way that I manage my fields. And a year from now, two years, three years from now, I'm going to really see the benefit of those actions. I'm going to have much healthier pastures. I'm feeling good because my horses are healthier. I'm feeling good because I know that I'm sequestering more carbon in the soil. Yay! Yay. But there, there's another step of saying, I'd like to do more. So how does someone become, take that step, that initial step of becoming more active? Or I mean, you've, you've talked about, you formed a local group. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like to step out into public? Uh, uh, certainly, yes. Uh, uh, perhaps I might start, though, more generally 
by saying that the joining local and uh, national groups that are working on whatever elements of this you yourself are interested in is a great way to get more involved. And there's bound to be at least one local group, I think, in most places in the developed world, certainly. And Mary Democra's book, again, Parents Guide the Climate Revolution, has a section on that. And there's a lot of online resources to help in addition. But yes, uh, several years ago, I co-founded uh, our local county climate action coalition with five founding nonprofit organizations. And we're uh, connected uh, in more tenuous ways with a number of other local groups that have interests in one or more aspects of uh, the kinds of things we're working on. Uh, we have specific projects like uh, decreasing vehicle idling uh, at schools in particular, but of course that applies everywhere. You don't need to idle more than 10 seconds. Uh, we have a tree planting project uh, in conjunction with some other local organizations that also do tree planting. We do education, we do advocacy, and again, we are not the only one doing this. Uh, our, uh, the nonprofits that uh, are part of our coalition do this, so do other organizations, and we try and network so that we can leverage our influence more effectively. Uh, it's very much a learning process. I think it helps if you are part of a national organization. They tend to have resources and workshops and things like that. But again, at all levels, uh, there's just no end to the kinds of things you can do to be part of the solution. Yeah, and that's the that's the critical phrase, isn't it? To be part of the solution. And that's what we want. We want yeah. to be part of the solution. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, I have one final question, and this is totally, it's not really off topic, but it's slightly off topic. I know you're a birder. Oh, yes. And I have, <laughs> yes. And I have a question about the swallows that are in my barn, which of course I want to encourage. What I my question is, will they re-nest in nests they have built in previous years, or should I take those nests down so that they can use what were clearly preferred locations to rebuild a fresh nest? That is a great question. And as it so happens, I just read a book last year that will help me answer it because otherwise I don't know that I would have been able to. Uh, but at least for the, the cliff swallows, and I, I would think this would apply more generally as well. Cliff swallows are colony nesters here in the U.S. I'm not sure if they have them in uh, the UK or Europe. And of course the swallows that, are, so we have the barn swallows. Right, right, different species. This book in particular was about longitudinal research at one uh, location of quite a number of colonies that were in that area, where this was in fact one of the questions they looked at, uh, Alexandra. Why is it that a colony would be going strong for a number of years, and then suddenly there'd be a year when no birds would nest there at all, or maybe only a few. And they found that very clearly parasite buildup was one of the determining variables. There were others as well, but that was a really critical one. So it's hard to answer your question though, because sometimes the nest can be reused if the parasite buildup is small or if it's like cold enough in the winter i don't know what the parasites are you know upstate new york uh maybe if it's an unusually bad winter they would die off i don't know it's an empirical question right but uh, uh for the cliff swallows uh this was in nebraska i think uh those parasites often did live on from year to year waiting until the birds would nest and then they would parasitize the young birds sometimes kill all of the nestlings so this was a very serious threat and so understandably then once the parasite buildup got large enough sometimes whole colonies would relocate to alternative locations and the researchers could follow this because of uh, bird banding and these modern uh, gps methods and all that it, i would think it couldn't hurt to knock the nest down and then they would just create a new one but if it's a nest that was just built for the first time the previous year, you might just let it stay and perhaps they could have at least two seasons without 
having to do a new nest before it would start to become an issue, maybe even three. Uh, again, it's an empirical question. There's a lot of variables. Yeah. Even the question like this is just not yeah. a simple yes or no, is yeah, it? Yeah, but at least it gives me a sort of an indication that it wouldn't be a terrible thing to take at least some of the nests down because I definitely want to encourage the swallows. And I was, I, I had a feeling that it might be a good idea, just watching their behavior, that it might be a good idea to take some of the older nests down so they could have those preferred locations start fresh. Excellent. You know, you might ask your local Audubon Club or in England, the, the RSPB, right, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, or uh, the other experts in your local area who might know more specifically. Yes, yes. Oh, well, this has been excellent. This is so, I thank you immensely. And here you were, you were concerned that you wouldn't have anything to share <laughs> with a horse group. <laughs> and this has been wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you've certainly given us a lot to read. Oh, my. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, and, and yeah. I love horses and uh, did have a period when I used to ride them uh, when I was younger. And, uh, uh, and I, I'm so grateful to you, Alexandra, for bringing all of uh, this uh, uh, eco-friendly approach to the horse community. Well, you know, the one thing you can say about horse people is we love being outside. Ah. That's what horses do for us. We open the pasture gate and, and our horses take us out into the natural world. So it is a place where it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter really where you live or what kind of horse sport you enjoy or whether you ride with an English saddle or a Western saddle. We, we like opening that pasture gate and riding out with our horses. So it's something that connects us and definitely worth exploring because I think we can make a difference. And what's more, we really need to make a difference. More power to you. Yep. Well, thank you immensely. Well, you are very welcome. Thank you yes, for thinking I've of me. It. And uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it too. I appreciate uh, your asking me. Susan sent me her annotated list of books on sustainability and climate change. I've posted it with the show notes in the sequestercarbon.com website. While the coronavirus is putting so many parts of our lives on hold, this is a great time to do some reading and to use our internet connections to become more active on behalf of the environment. I love the sound of Mary DeMocker's book, the Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution. If you have children home from school, this book might give you some great project ideas. And speaking of projects, Dominique Day and I have just published our first Listen and Learn audio course. It's an introduction to applied behavioral analysis. Mary Hunter is our co-presenter in the course. Many of you will know Mary through her blog, Stale Cheerios. Mary is also the president of the Art and Science of Animal Training organization that hosts a conference of that same name. And she and Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz just published a portal manual. And together they have a great website, behavioralexplorer.com. To learn more about the Listen and Learn audio course or to register, go to equiosity.com. We know many of you have tight budgets right now because of the coronavirus, so we're offering the course at 50% off the regular price. That offer will be good through May 31, 2020. So you have three websites to visit. Susan Snyder's website is scienceofconsequences.com. To get her annotated list of books, visit sequestercarbon.com. And to sign up for the new Listen and Learn audio introduction to applied behavioral analysis, go to equiosity.com. That's equus plus curiosity, and you'll get to equiosity.com. Enjoy them all, stay well, and thank you for listening.